Welcome to the HSD podcast series. I'm your host today, Laura Franco, Vice President, Director of Post-Acute Regulatory Strategy. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer Lamb, RN, MBA, and Mock Surveyor for Life Care Services. And we are continuing our talks about the new FTAG numbering system and the regulations contained in each one of those FTAGs. Our overall goal is to help you understand each of the potential substandard care FTAGs fully, especially now that the surveyors are using them during the survey process. Today, our topic is F678, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR. So welcome back, Jennifer. It's good to have you. Thanks, Laura. It's good to be back with you as well. And I'm happy to be here to share some more information about these F-tags and how our communities can get ready for their state surveys. Wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and recap what we're doing with this series of podcasts. Absolutely. Um, So what we've been doing and what we're continuing to do is cover one F-tag per podcast. And these are contained under the 49 tags identified as substandard quality of care. Now, to define substandard quality of care, we look at CMS's definition of that, and that is having more than one deficiency related to participation requirements under resident behavior and facility practices, quality of life, and quality of care that constitute either immediate jeopardy to resident health and safety, a pattern of or widespread actual harm that is not immediate jeopardy, or a widespread potential for more than minimal harm but less than immediate jeopardy with no actual harm. And as usual, we are using the state operations manual that the surveyors use, um, the guidance to surveyors for long-term care facilities. And we use the one that became effective in November 28, 2017, the latest copy. And so this is what the surveyors are using. So we're using the exact same SOM, and we feel that's the best tool for you to learn as much as the surveyors and be prepared for your next state survey. You know, I kind of see the psalm as a, an open book test, Jennifer. I mean, truly, everything is there, too. right? <laughs> right? So. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is the cheat sheet of all cheat sheets. There you, you go. <laughs> download that and have the answers right in front of you. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> well, let's go ahead then and jump into um, 678, which is all about CPR and the residents' advanced directives. Previously, 678 was part of what we knew as F-155, and F-155 discussed advanced directives, the resident's right to refuse any services or treatment, and basic life support, including CPR. But now CPR has its own tag. So why don't you go ahead and define for us um, specifically F-678? Absolutely. So F-678 says, Personnel will provide basic life support, including CPR, to a resident requiring such emergency care prior to the arrival of emergency medical personnel and subject to related physician orders and the resident's advanced directives. The intent of this regulation is to ensure that each facility is able to and does provide emergency basic life support immediately when needed, including CPR, to any resident requiring such care prior to the arrival of EMTs in accordance with the resident's wishes and physician orders. 
And I'd also like to include that an advanced directive is defined as a written instruction, such as a living will or a durable power of attorney for health care that's recognized under the state law relating to the provision of health care when the individual is incapacitated. Some states recognize a documented oral instruction, and it's really going to be important that our listeners um, understand and know their own state requirements to determine the advanced directive regulations. Now, having said that, Jennifer, what can our communities do to stay in compliance with um, this citation, or excuse me, this regulation? Well, the facilities must ensure that the staff have been properly trained in providing basic life support. Healthcare providers must be CPR certified and available 24 hours a day if and when an emergency arises. Now, our staff should be able to provide emergency care in accordance with the resident's wishes and physician's order prior to the arrival of emergency medical personnel, such as EMTs. The staff must adhere to the American Heart Association guidelines for CPR. Well, and according to the SOM, the American Heart Association, or AHA, publishes guidelines for CPR and emergency cardiovascular care every five years. So they're updating that every five years. And the guidelines provide evidence-based decision-making guidelines for initiating CPR when cardiac or respiratory arrest occur in or out of the hospital. The American Heart Association urges all potential rescuers to initiate CPR immediately unless a DNR or a do not resuscitate order is in place. And that's only when there are obvious clinical signs of death, such as rigor mortis, um, decapitation, decomposition, or if initiating that CPR could cause injury or peril to the rescuer. That's correct. And also, surveyors will look at the facility policy and procedures to determine if there are an adequate number of staff who are appropriately trained and certified to perform CPR if necessary. The policy simply cannot direct the staff to dial 911. They have to be able to initiate CPR prior to the emergency uh, team showing up. Um, The surveyors will also audit employee records and determine if the staff are trained and if their certifications are up to date. This training must involve an in-person demonstration skill component. The staff cannot take an online course and then say, well, I'm certified. It doesn't work that way. There may be a portion that is online, for instance, the knowledge component, but that skill component, again, must be a live demonstration with an instructor. Um, They're also going to look at residence records and determine if the residence code status is documented and if the physician has written an order in accordance with the residence code choice. This order should be obtained as soon as possible after admission and with any changes in condition or resident preference. It is not unusual for the resident or residence representative to change their mind about the code status, and it's our responsibility to make sure that that preference is honored. We've talked in other um, podcasts that we've done previously about resident preferences, resident center care, and this takes us to a whole new level. So what do our communities need to do to make sure that the staff know the preferences the resident has has regarding their coding status and if that code status has changed? Well, Laura, I have seen binders with code status forms in them. And I've seen um, DNR or full, or full code symbols that are on the home page of the e-chart 
that indicates the code status. And I've also seen code status listed on the face sheet. So whatever method the community decides that they want to use, it must be used consistently. Because to be honest, it can be very confusing and it can be detrimental if the code status is not placed in the same place for each resident. So in an emergency, it would not do to go searching for a DNR or full code um, status sheet in a chart or binder or electronic medical record that's inconsistent. They need to be able to go you know, immediately to that place and find that information. Um, I want to tell you that in my past experience as a state surveyor, and, and this was not at one of our communities or anything, this was in the past for me, but I had the unfortunate task of investigating an incident in which a resident was full code, but the staff did not initiate CPR because there was some confusion as to the resident's status. Um, at that particular facility, what they did was they used a purple dot that they stuck on the nameplate outside of the resident room. And so when this person was in the middle of uh, a cardiac arrest, what happened was that at this heightened time of emergency, the nurse peeked her head out read the wrong name, saw the dot, and stopped the CPR um, because she thought that they were not a code. And so when a second nurse went out to the EMAR and read it at the top of um, the page, the home page, they could see the full code um, alerting the first nurse that indeed this resident was a full code. Um, the resident expired because they stopped CPR. So needless to say, those dots disappeared, and they then put up a practice in place that was a standard it was set for where the staff could go and look and determine code status for each resident, and it was consistent throughout at that point. Yeah, that's a really unfortunate situation, and I think you've got a good point there. Yeah, yeah, I think you have a really good point um, that a standard has to be set and adhered to, and that's just for the basic health and safety of our residents, absolutely. Earlier, I mentioned advanced directives, and um, I'd like to point out to our listeners that just because a resident has an advanced directive, it doesn't mean that the facility does not have to provide supportive care um, and any other pertinent care for the resident. A resident's DNR does not indicate that the resident does not want or is refusing other appropriate treatment and services. All it means is that if the resident um, respirations or cardiac function cease, the staff will not resuscitate the resident. Yes, that's exactly right. Simply having an advanced directive does not excuse us from providing appropriate care. Well, then with that, um, what are some of the key elements that we could be non-compliant with FTAG 678? Um, well, some of those key elements of noncompliance that are found in the SOM include the facility failure to do uh, the following, provide basic life support, including CPR to a resident who required emergency life support and or resuscitative care, um, ensuring availability of staff who can provide CPR, having appropriate policies directing staff when to initiate basic life support, ensuring that staff is familiar with the facility policies related to CPR, ensuring that staff knows how to confirm residents' code status in an emergency, and ensuring that staff maintain current CPR certification. And that's for healthcare providers through a CPR provider whose training um, includes hands-on practice and in-person skills assessment. So any of these could result in a tag. Um, also, given the nature of this tag, surveyors may investigate as to whether or not psychosocial harm occurred. And as we have discussed in past podcast, a finding of psychosocial harm actually can double the sanctions associated with uh, those citations. 
Well, and I want to go back to the psalm again, because one of the areas under each tag in the psalm that holds some useful information are the examples of each severity level. For example, the um, the example that the psalm gives for a severity level four immediate jeopardy is the failure to provide or delay in providing CPR to a resident who did not have an advanced directive and collapsed in a dining room. Another example under that level was a facility having no CPR policy. And if that were to happen, um, that could upset the residents. They could become worried. They might want to move um, or they might want to sign a DNR causing psychosocial harm. So thankfully, our communities do not have a no CPR policy. And at LCS, we do a really great job during our admission process of obtaining the code, sta- or the code status and preference um, and orders during that process of our residents. Yes, I agree. Um, we do a fantastic job. I know that um, when Deb Doss and I do our chart audits, you know, we make sure that the we that we see advanced directives and code status for each resident that we sample. Um, we also make sure that the pertinent staff has valid CPR certifications that are not expired, and that staff understand what to do in the event of an emergency. The staff should know where the crash carts are kept and have access to them as well. The carts should never be behind a locked door that only the nurses have access to. Um, the carts should be up to date and have everything needed in the event of an emergency. Again, our communities do a wonderful job of being ready and being able to assist in the event of an emergency. Well, you know, there's a whole lot of common sense in in what you just said also, Jennifer. So, you know, stepping back and, you know, thinking about a a cart behind a locked door um, and having to get to it in an emergent situation. So uh, sometimes common sense goes a long way, don't you think? I absolutely agree with that, yes. Well, um, this was another great, great piece of information, and I would like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this continued series of Outlining the New F-Tags. And Jennifer, again, I want to thank you for um, some some really important information and our discussion of F-Tag 678, and I really look forward to our discussion again. I do too, Laura. Thank you very much. And um, again, when we get together, our next podcast, we're going to talk about F679, and that's about activities and meeting the interests and needs of our residents. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. And that's all for today. Legal disclaimer. Life Care Services LLC is not engaged in rendering legal advice. Therefore, any information provided in this podcast, although intended to be correct, is also not intended to replace or supersede the advice of your legal counsel. Also, thank you to Ben Sounds for the music provided in this podcast.